2: Tony Young moved from Washington, D.C. to West Virginia, looking for a change.
0: It was like my weekend place. I actually moved out here thinking I was actually kind of getting out of HIV.
2: She'd been working as an HIV-AIDS advocate, running an organization called the Community Education Group. She kept in touch with her public health contacts back in Washington. And one day, she was on the phone with one of them, a woman named Karina.
0: And we were talking one day. You know, I had been out here for, I don't know, like a month after kind of shutting down most of my direct services in D.C. And I was like, I don't know, you know, maybe I should do something out here. And she's like, you're kidding, right? And I was like, no, what do you mean? And she's like, let me send you some stuff.
2: This is when Tony first saw the map.
0: I was literally sitting on my porch and my mouth fell open.
2: Why did it fall open? It
0: fell open because I didn't know that it was this bad.
2: This map Tony was looking at, it had been released by the Centers for Disease Control. It showed places the agency thought were most vulnerable to an HIV outbreak. Not big cities, but rural counties, including more than half of the counties in West Virginia. That's some pretty
0: ridiculous math, when you think about it. And I called her back and I was like, who's working on this stuff? This is crazy. Where's the money for this? And Karina was like, um, there's no resources. Nobody's working on it. And uh, I guess you. And hung up the phone.
2: This map. It almost perfectly matches up with a different map one that shows where the pharmaceutical companies sent most of their pain pills at the height of the opioid crisis. Tony says to understand how the CDC decided that people in Appalachia were at risk for HIV, you've got to know what you're looking at here. These counties, they're in trouble because of high levels of unemployment, low incomes, and also because of their overdose rate.
0: That's where HIV comes from. So it had to come because you've got opioid use. You've got poverty. You've got low educational attainment. So the only thing that can come next is HIV. Because you've got all of these factors. So when you look at that map, you see HIV not there, but it's the caboose of the train.
2: Ever since she saw this map, tony has been waiting, keeping an eye on the health alerts she gets. And then this spring.
1: A cluster of HIV infections is now present
2: in Cabell County. The majority of the cases are attributed to the sharing of needles among drug users. And that's
0: when they found out, holy moly, we have a problem.
1: Human services revealed that Cabell County has had more HIV cases in a single year than the entire state of West Virginia since 2008. In the last
2: six months, dozens of West Virginians have been diagnosed with HIV. Many of them in a single county. Tony says this HIV cluster, it might look like an outlier, but she thinks it's just the beginning.
0: Nobody that's running a health department in these uh, 28 vulnerable counties was prepared for an HIV outbreak. They were looking at an opioid outbreak, but they weren't prepared for HIV. They weren't prepared for it the way it's it's coming.
2: Today on the show, we're going to try to understand what is going on in West Virginia, because West Virginia isn't alone. In the 80s, advocates in big cities forced public health systems to respond to the AIDS crisis. Decades later, can these rural counties do the same thing? Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary.
2: BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dr. Stephen Thrasher is a writer and a professor at Northwestern University. He's chronicled HIV in America for about a decade now. And he has this quote he thinks about a lot. It's from the artist and activist Zoe Leonard.
1: She says, What AIDS revealed was not the problem of the virus. What AIDS revealed was the problems of our society. It was this fissure through which everything, all the ways in which our society isn't working, became really clear. The sexism was clearly delineated. The racism was clearly delineated classism. And that's something that's, I actually have that pinned up in my office as well. When I started reporting on HIV, I realized that It is a prism. It shows us not only matters of health and health disparities, it really intersects with homelessness and it intersects with the carceral state. Whenever I fly into a town where I haven't been before, and I'm reporting a story, I will ask the network of people I know who do HIV and AIDS work if they'll introduce me to their counterparts in that town. Because the HIV AIDS people, they always have the tea. They know exactly what's going on in terms of housing, health care, the police, everything like that, even if my story isn't about HIV and AIDS.
2: I wanted to talk to Stephen because of the op-ed he wrote for The New York Times, drawing parallels between the HIV crisis of the 80s and how HIV infections are spreading now, in places like Cabell County, West Virginia. Steven sees this latest outbreak as inseparable from the economic crisis that's decimating Appalachia. He says after the coal jobs left and a pain crisis emerged, HIV bloomed under the same conditions it had decades earlier.
1: It's not a stretch of the imagination to know what trends are going to emerge when a factory leaves town use of the informal economy, sex work, and drug use are going to go up. And if we leave people without any ways to protect themselves and no public health infrastructures, hepatitis C and HIV are going to move quickly through their communities. This is a story about deindustrialization. It happened in the Tenderloin, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn. Fortunately, in those cities, the actual political structures is giving them some of the resources they need to do the work. And there are very good people in these rural places who want to do the work as well, but they simply don't have the state resources they need to marshal an effective defense.
2: Stephen thinks these problems, deindustrialization plus the absence of a coordinated health campaign, they're what's making places like Cabell County, West Virginia, especially vulnerable. We should place Cabell County on the map because when I looked at it, it's at this really... Interesting point. It's sort of at the intersection of Kentucky and Ohio and West Virginia. One of the cities in this county, Huntington, has been called the overdose capital of America. So it really was like the heart of what became the opioid crisis in Appalachia.
1: Yeah. For as far back as I've looked at CDC mortality rates in the past five, six years, West Virginia has consistently been the state with the highest rate of opioid overdose deaths. So this HIV crisis and the hepatitis crisis that emerge in places like this are an outgrowth of an overall uh, death rate. And you're right to look at, we don't want to kind of think about State borders as these hard places people travel, and there's a lot of overlap that's happening between West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio. One thing that does can make a life or death difference is that you know not far from West Virginia and Virginia and Maryland, um, there are state efforts to do things that help people much more, and so you kind of have a uh, a bit of a brain drain of uh, public health people can go do the work in nearby states much more effectively with more support. And then the people who are most marginalized are getting the least support.
2: But it's, it's, it's interesting to me because you know, I was sort of looking into this county and and what it had been struggling with. But I also found that there were a lot of public health officials there who were really trying to intervene in some way. Like 60 Minutes just did a story this summer about how... Addiction counselors were going out with the police and, you know, they had started a needle exchange in this county and overdoses were actually down 25 percent in 2018, according to The Washington Post.
1: Yeah. One of the the problems in West Virginia, I think, is that you have all of these counties that are and they're great people trying to do stuff all over the place. But they're doing it really independently. There are 55 different counties in West Virginia. There's not an entire state effort that's coordinated to take these things on. There's not a federal effort uh, to deal with these things in this area. And you can only do so much harm reduction when things are criminalized. So when you send people out with the police, that's going to, one, uh, put people in harm's way with the police, particularly non-white people and disabled people who, who are going to avoid and or are more likely to have violent and perhaps lethal interactions with the police. And then it also increases stigma in a way. Uh, We have a very, very different infrastructure for dealing with public health and HIV in Chicago, where I live, and in New York, that you don't need to go through the police to get access to these things. There's a big nonprofit, governmental and nonprofit um, ability to do it. And in places like Kabul County, the country doctor and even um, people and hospitals are not routinely testing people for HIV. So when they start seeing it, there's a real warning bell that goes off that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And it means that a lot of stuff that's going on you know, might not be diagnosed at all, that they they just might not have a handle on how many people are living with the virus. So we should say we, we don't know what caused this outbreak. We know
2: that dozens of people have been diagnosed at this point. But I couldn't help but notice that over the last few years, Cabell County, they've had to really fight to keep some of their more progressive interventions for IV drug use going. Can you explain a little bit what happened with their local needle exchange? Do you know that story?
1: Okay. So what happened in Cabell County is that the public health people are really on the defensive. And when they're trying to answer in public forums, um, what's happening, they're they're having to battle the idea that needle exchanges are the reason why HIV is rising.
2: And in Huntington, the discussion focused on the needle exchange program and the
1: rise in HIV cases and that's where we begin tonight. Where some of those numbers have reached an alarming level, 76 confirmed. And this is a common thing that you can see anywhere in the country. There's a misnomer that if you give people clean syringes that they are going to, you know, engage in quote-unquote worse behavior and that it's going to make things get more out of control.
2: Critics have questioned whether there's a connection between those rising HIV numbers and the harm reduction program at the health department. Dr. Kilkenny says there is no connection.
1: The harm reduction program exists to keep that increase down. Pretty consistently, the research has shown that clean needle exchanges are things that help people get into drug treatment programs and they also are very effective at lowering the rates of uh, HIV and hepatitis. And so in Kabul County, they're they're really trying to fight against these misnomers. And at the same time, they they should be able to be expanding their work and they're really on the defensive and trying to hold back people who, who are keeping them from doing the work that they need to do.
2: I was reading that, you know, the Department of Health was battling this idea, as you said, that somehow the needle exchange was bad. I found like a local news report from Charleston, which is just down the road, where you know, they've reported on their needles everywhere and and we need to clean it up. And in Charleston, they actually did end up closing the needle exchange. But in Huntington, which is in Cabell County, they just put more restrictions and more restrictions, like suddenly you needed an ID to get needles. and, in 2018, they saw the number of needles that they distributed just plummet from like 60,000 to 20,000.
1: Yeah, it's a real problem. The more requirements that are around something, the less it's going to be used. So of course, uh, you're never going to, when you require an, I, an ID, you're not going to get people who are undocumented, certainly not you know, youth, uh, people who might need these things as well. But it also is just increasing the stigma. It's convincing people that there's something bad about this practice, a practice that we know will help people and will save lives and not just the lives of the people actually using the intravenous drugs themselves. I I try not to to judge them or, or make a moral argument about them. But it's not just a matter of them themselves and their lives are, are valuable and precious, but it's also everyone around them. Uh, and so when, when the restrictions are put on that result in fewer people using them, it's not just putting them at risk, but the people they're having sex with and, and the people in their lives as well.
2: As Stephen and I were talking, I kept thinking back to the AIDS crisis in the '80s and the '90s, all the activism that demanded a response from people in power. It seemed to me those protests were coming from a place of rejecting shame and demanding visibility. I'd call it pride.
1: Yeah, I I see it a little differently. There there is a level of pride that's happened in. Gay activism. But I've spent a lot of time in the ACT UP oral history archives, and I know a lot of the people who are there. One of the most touching scenes I've seen on video, which is both in the films How to Survive a Plague and Unite in Anger, which are both about ACT UP, is a demonstration that happens outside of the White House when George H.W. Bush was in it, uh, was the occupant of it. And to protest his inaction around HIV and AIDS, uh, people take ashes of their dead lovers and friends and hurl them over the White House fence onto the lawn. And there is a great deal of anger but the ongoing activism that happens in D.C., Washington, San Francisco, places like that does really benefit from the fact that there is a critical mass of people and queer communities who you know, could at least reassure each other that they cared about each other and that they're going to be there for each other. And so they did benefit from that. And you don't have that in West Virginia. You, don't, you just don't have the critical mass of it. This group Stevens, talking about,
2: ACT UP. It was one of the most powerful anti-AIDS organizations working to combat the epidemic. Their protests against the government, against pharmaceutical companies, they were incredibly effective. As someone who spent time in those ACT UP archives and really looked at the history of activism around HIV and AIDS, I wonder how much it suggests a way forward to you here in terms of how to get the attention to these communities, how to get the resources that they need.
1: Well, they're sort of in the one of the first stages of what ACT UP did, which was to force national attention on it and press attention on it. So, one of the first things ACT UP did was to force people to look at things, and then they they collectively organized amongst each other. So, I am hoping that something out of this, you know, will be that, that people who are living with HIV and who are at risk of it might be able to find one one another and come together and demand that they get the resources they need. ACT UP was really effective at for forcing. Forcing drug companies to change some of their processes and forcing the drug companies and the FDA to, to revise how they were doing things so that they could get drugs into bodies faster. Hopefully something like that is going to happen, too.
2: There's one more group Stephen thinks could change outcomes in rural communities, criminal justice reformers. The infrastructure for these movements, it's already built. The question is whether they'll take on a new cause.
1: You know, this is the rare moment where you could potentially see a big move happening between kind of different constituencies who do criminal justice work. So the Black Lives Matter movement really helped bring attention to what was happening to black people under policing in this country. And there's been really good activism happening uh, among Latinx activists about what's happening with ICE and, and, and Hispanic and Latino people. Now we have a situation where white people are similarly vulnerable to what it means when when they're policed through drug related things, because the opioid crisis is creating a high level of incarceration of poor white people as well. And so hopefully this situation here, if I think about what ACT UP was able to do, if the people who want to address how HIV is moving in rural America, if they can connect into kind of the the general consciousness raising that's happened around dealing with these things as matters of policing and not as matters of healthcare, then I think that they could really have a powerful impact on not just what's happening with HIV, but the opioid epidemic and the ways that the very means of life are criminalized and not dealt with as matters of health.
2: Dr. Stephen Thrasher, thank you so much for
1: joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Mary.
2: Stephen Thrasher is the Daniel Reinberg Chair of Social Justice and Reporting at Northwestern University. That's where he's also an Assistant Professor of Journalism. And that's the show. Before we go, if you are like me staying up late at night looking around the internet for gifts for your friends and your family, I have a tiny, teeny tiny little suggestion for you. Go to the Slate shop. Yes, this is a thing that exists on Slate's website where you can buy all kinds of stuff. I love the Slate socks. I do actually wear them and recommend them. We've also got a hoodie featuring the Slate asterisk. Now through December 25th, we're giving 15% off if you use the code SLATE15 at shop.slate.com. One more time. That is the code SLATE15 at shop.slate.com. Tell them What Next sent you. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow.